our family went to Branson, Missouri for fall break. We, we brought the average age down just a bit in Branson, Missouri that week. And before we go, some friends of ours here at Highland grabbed us and they said, you have got to go see these Bible plays that this theater company in Branson puts on. You've got to go see one of these plays while you're there. And I'll admit, even as a preacher, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but when they said Bible plays, I kind of rolled my eyes because the Bible's not cheesy, but Bible plays are nearly always <laughs> cheesy. But we decided we'd go ahead and go. And I tell you, we went and saw the play Samson, and it was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. My boys are still talking about when Samson pushes the temple down on all the Philistines and pillars and rocks were falling out of the sky in this theater. They absolutely loved it. So anyways, now we're on the email list for this theater in Branson. <clears throat> A couple weeks ago, just before Easter, we get an email from this theater and they say that in light of the pandemic and all their shows being stopped for a time, they're gonna stream their Jesus play on Easter. And so that night, after having seen such an awesome Samson play, that night, Easter night, we tuned in and watched two and a half hours straight with our boys. They never got off the couch for two and a half hours, which never happens. And we watched this play about the life of Jesus. And like Samson's play, this was incredible. And the best part, it was not Jesus' death on the cross, although that was moving. We were weeping as a family. And it wasn't his resurrection, even though that was powerful to see. The best part of the whole play was the ascension of Jesus. <clears throat> when after the crucifixion and then the resurrection, Jesus is seen by his disciples and others and then is taken up on a cloud into heaven, returning to the Father, to the throne room of God. And as Jesus is standing there on this set in Branson, Missouri, he suddenly starts rising up from the set. My boys are hitting me. Dad, is he flying? Is he really flying? Is that really Jesus? Is he really flying? <laughs> it was awesome. And as Jesus leaves out of the top of that theater into the dark, the very next scene is this really small house with the disciples gathered in this small room around a table. And one of the disciples asks, how will we know when the Holy Spirit has come? And Peter says, oh, we'll just, we'll just know. And right then the Holy Spirit fills that room like a fire. And I love that. You know, they got something right about the story of Jesus. And that is that the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1 and when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the early church in Acts 2 at Pentecost, that the ascension in Acts 1, Pentecost in Acts 2, that those are two sides to the same coin. And that matters. It matters that the Holy Spirit was poured out on those disciples when Jesus was raised on high. It matters because of what Paul says. Paul says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What are you most looking forward to when this quarantine and pandemic ends? 
Where do you want to go? Uh, what do you want to eat? What do you most want to do? I want you to post that in the comment section down below. And whoever has the best idea, we're going to send something special to you. You know what I can't wait for? I can't stop thinking about Gibson's Donuts. Every Friday when we take our son to school, not far from Gibson's, we pull into Gibson's and we get in that long line. And on Friday, the line snakes through Gibson's Donuts. Nobody's social distancing inside Gibson's Donuts. And my kids run up to the glass and they put their fingers and their faces on the glass and they stare at all those donuts. And then you gotta get scrappy to get yourself a seat in Gibson's Donuts because it's so full. So you, you send your kids over to some booth when it finally opens up and they holler from the booth, Daddy, Daddy, I want the Sprinkles one, the Sprinkles one. I know you want the Sprinkles one, you're four. Every four-year-old wants the Sprinkles one, right? You know what I get? I get the chocolate eclair with the cream filling. Because I figure, you know, if I'm going to have a donut, I'm going to go all out. And just thinking about sitting at that booth with my boys and that first bite of that chocolate donut with that eclair filling, mm, man, I cannot wait for that. What are you looking forward to? Let me ask you this question, and it may, and it may be hard to answer now that you're thinking about Gibson's Donuts, and I am too. Well, let me ask you this question. What do you think Scripture is most looking forward to? You know, what is Scripture anticipating most? And if you're thinking about that question, probably a lot of things come to mind. You know, you might, you might say, well, Scripture's looking forward to heaven one day, or Scripture's looking forward to a king who will rule over all the earth, or Scripture's anticipating um, things like peace and righteousness and justice on the earth as it is in heaven. And I would say yes to all those things. Scripture is looking forward to all of those things. But if you were going to really dig into your Old Testament and you were going to look at what the people of God were anticipating for centuries more than anything else, the answer may surprise you. Because what they were most looking forward to was the Spirit of God. And you say, well, I thought it was a king they were looking forward to. I mean, I thought they had this idea of this king that would come and liberate them, that would bring peace to the land, that really what they were after more than anything was a Messiah, an anointed one, a king who would deliver them and lead them into some new world and time. Well, yeah, yeah, they were looking forward to that. But they weren't just looking for anybody who could do that. You know, specifically, they were looking for somebody who was filled with something, anointed by something. That's what Messiah means, anointed one. And specifically, they were looking for the one who was anointed by God. Well, this is what we read in Isaiah about that one. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. They were looking for somebody who was anointed by the Spirit of God. So when Jesus goes to his home synagogue one day, and he starts his sermon in his home synagogue by saying this in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Or when John the Baptist says about Jesus that to him, God gives the Spirit without limit. Well, when the the Jewish people around at that time heard those things, their antenna went up. Because if this is true, if this guy, Jesus, if he's really anointed by 
the Spirit, then then this might be the beginning of what we have always hoped for. And I do mean beginning, because what they believed is that this one who was anointed by the Spirit would then unlock that Spirit for everybody else. We read this, first would come the one anointed by the Spirit, and then in Joel 2.28, afterward, I, God, will pour out my Spirit on all people. So again, in other words, the one who was anointed by God with the Spirit was going to unlock the Spirit for everybody else. And that's what they were most looking forward to. They knew what that meant. From the time most young Jewish kids were little, their mom would tell them a story at night before bed. And it was the same kind of story that they might hear when they went to uh, the synagogue and heard the priest preach about an Old Testament passage. This story was often told again and again. And it's also the kind of story that the men probably told as they were coming home from work at the end of another long day in the office. You know, this is the kind of story they would tell again and again. And it's a story we find in Ezekiel chapter 37. It begins in a really hard time in Israel's history. Now, now you and I are in a hard time right now in this pandemic and recession Many of us are feeling desperate in this moment. I want to honor that. And if you feel that way, let me tell you, you are not the first to feel that way. In fact, at this moment in Ezekiel 37, Israel feels so bad, they say this, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. Bones, huh, God says. Let me show you some bones, Ezekiel. And in that moment, Ezekiel's picked up and he's taken to this faraway place, this valley that is just filled with these dry, cracking, old bones. And God shows these bones to Ezekiel. And he says, Ezekiel, you think those bones, you think those bones can live again? And Ezekiel's thinking, you know, they're, they're bones? Probably not. And, and God says, just talk to them. Talk to those bones. And Ezekiel's thinking, this is getting really weird, but he begins to speak to all these bones in this valley. Only it's not him speaking, it's God who's speaking through him. And God says this to those bones. He says, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. And suddenly they do. And these bones start flying around about this valley and they're coming together into skeletons and flesh and sinew are covering those bones until in just a moment, Ezekiel looks out and all he can see is this vast living army that God has cobbled together out of these bones. And you know that word breath, I will put my breath in you. That's the same word for spirit. And indeed, this whole thing, this whole scene with the bones is just an object lesson for Ezekiel because God then says this, And he's saying this about the lifeless and hopeless people of Israel who belong to him. He says this about them. He says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And the message of that story was really clear. You know, there's a reason that good Jewish moms and good Jewish dads and good Jewish priests told that story again and again. It's because they knew something. That it is only the spirit of of God that can make a hopeless life feel worth living. 
you know, it's only the Spirit of God that has the power to come into our lives when we feel like dried bones and put flesh on us and build us up and give us a purpose. It's like Jesus says in John 6, the Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. And that's what they were waiting on. I think that truth that the Spirit gives life is a haunting force in our world. And, the, and, I, and I say haunting because if that's true, that only the Spirit of God really gives life to you and me, then the opposite is also true. To be without the Spirit is to have a life that's not really life. In high school, I read a, a book by John Krakauer called Into the Wild. Maybe some of you have read it. Tells the story of a young man who at the time wasn't much older than me in college. His name was Christopher McCandless. And McCandless had, had grown up in a pretty comfortable life. His parents had given him what he needed, sent him to college, given him a car. But he had this overwhelming sense that his life was, well, it wasn't really life. And so one day he drives his car out into this wash in the desert and a flash flood comes along and hits his car and he just leaves the car he burns all his money and he just hitchhikes off into the West. And the story's tragic. He ends in the most you know, tragic possible way. But I've often thought about that story because he felt something about his life that so many of us have felt at times, and that is that the life I'm living isn't really life. And he made this choice to, to walk away from that life and try to find real life. But you, know, you want to know something. That's not what most people do when they feel that. What most people do when they feel like their life is not really life is they, they dig in deeper to those things in their life that they believe will distract them from that ominous and foreboding sense of emptiness they feel. Charles Taylor, this prominent philosopher, talks about this. He says that what we do when we feel that emptiness is we dig in deeper and we build these mansions, these giant walls around us that are, we build with our wealth, our security, our hobbies, our work, our family, and we buffer ourselves with these giant walls, these giant mansions from anything that might, well, show us something of God. And we buffer ourselves from the Spirit of God, believing that if we just dig down deeply enough, if we just raise those walls high enough, then that emptiness of our lives, well, well, we won't really feel it. But think about all the celebrities you see on Instagram who, who post about their daily yoga and meditation routines, right? Or talk about how spiritual they are on social media. And some of them surely are. But I, think, but I think the reality is most of us, and we see this in them, most of us don't walk away from those things that make us comfortable and distract us from the emptiness. Most of us dig in deeper. But then when we realize our lives still feel empty, what we try to do is crack open the door just for 30 minutes while we're on our yoga mat to some kind of transcendent and meaningful experience of the Spirit something beyond ourselves. We try to crack open the door, let in just a little bit, and then close it back tight. Only, that's not the way the Spirit of God works. No, I think that's what Ezekiel would go and he would tell the rich and famous in our modern world. That's not how the Spirit works in little 30-minute 
cracks in the door. That's not how the Spirit works. And that's what Ezekiel returned and he told the people of God in Israel. What the Spirit of God wants to do is to overwhelm you, to overwhelm those gates and barricades and to fill you up and wreck you until you realize the life you're living is not really life. And it's only then that the Holy Spirit begins to transform you from the inside out, to transform us into His image with ever-increasing glory, Paul says, like we read. <clears throat> but that's, that's what the Spirit wants, whether we acknowledge that or not. You know, remember that when Jesus says the life-giving Spirit is on Him, what He meant was that He was the one who was going to make that life-giving spirit available to everyone else. That's his plan and purpose. That that's why we read in John 7 that whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by that he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. I was reminded of that passage by that line, rivers of living water. I was reminded of that passage a couple weeks ago when I was watching a documentary on the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is this mighty spectacle that's been carved by the Colorado River that weaves its way through that canyon, through the west, and towards the Gulf of California. And for years and centuries, that that river flowed all the way into the Gulf of California. But in the West where water is more scarce, we've come more and more to rely on the Colorado River, so much so that now the river no longer reaches the Gulf. It just dries up like you see here in this image. And that's not how I think of rivers, right? Dried up, a boat stranded in the sand. That's not how I think of, of rivers. I remember the first time I came to Memphis, Tennessee, we came out here to interview for this job and David Ralston took Lindsay, my wife, and I to the top of the Peabody Motel and we looked out over the Mississippi River and it was so huge. <laughs> Nearly took my breath away. I had never seen something so big and powerful and mighty. A couple of years later, we took a, a group of men from Highland down the Mississippi River on a, on a guy's trip. <clears throat> we had these big canoes that we piled into and we, we went down that river for three days and we slept on sandbars in the middle of the Mississippi River each night and barges, giant barges went by and we went through their wake, bobbing up and down. But the best part of the whole trip was when we out in the middle of the Mississippi River with no barges around, our guide looks at us and he says, you want to swim? And we were all like, yeah, we want to swim. And so we, we jump out of the canoes one after another. And we had life jackets on. We were trained guides with us. I don't recommend swimming in the Mississippi River. But this huge force, this river just carried us along while we laughed and bobbed in that water for what felt like miles, right? It was the most powerful experience. <clears throat> and I want you to think about the difference in those two rivers you know, you've got this one river that has dried up, not reaching the gulf anymore. And you've got this other river that's full of this power sweeping us along. 
And I think there's something about this pandemic that's revealing for many of us which of those two rivers is inside us. Maybe right now you're scared. Maybe you've lost your job. You've lost somebody you've loved. And it feels like those walls that you have built around your life, that they've kind of come tumbling down. And you're left feeling this emptiness and this fear. And when you saw that picture of that dried up river on its way to the Gulf of California and that stranded boat there, you saw that and you thought, hmm, that's me. That's what, I, that's what I feel like. Well, let me tell you, you're not the first to feel that way. And if you were to read your Bible, if you were to grab that Bible off your shelf that maybe you haven't cracked open in a while, and you were to look at stories like this one and Ezekiel and others, you will find that so many people in the Bible have felt the way that you feel right now. And so what they longed for, what they most hoped for was that the Spirit of God would come and carry them away in His power. That they would be washed in that Spirit. That that Spirit would would fill them. That it would cleanse them. That it would surround them with power and might. They were longing for this time when the Spirit would come. The Spirit who's called the Advocate, the Helper, the Counselor, the Comforter, living water. But notice first before the Spirit could come, the anointed one, the one anointed by the Spirit had to come, right? And not only come, but be glorified. That's what we read about in John 7. Jesus said he had to rise to the Father before the Spirit could come. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about how Wouldn't it have been awesome if Jesus just stayed and he was still here today and you and I could just call Jesus up on the phone and hang out with Jesus? And Jesus addresses that. Jesus says, no, no, there is something better. He says this, very truly I tell you, it is for your good I'm going away because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Listen, I don't, I don't, fully understand that. That's something that theologians and scholars and ministers have debated for century and millennia. Why did Jesus have to go to send the Spirit? I don't fully understand, but, but this is what we know. Until Jesus, filled with and empowered by the Spirit of God, returned to heaven, the Spirit of God was held behind a dam in heaven. And sometimes it trickled out for people to experience in small measures, but it was not a constant flow. But when Jesus returns to heaven, he opens the floodgates. And because he has ascended to heaven in the power of the Spirit and is enthroned at the right hand of God, he had the power and ability to give to you and to me what God's people have always wanted most. And that's the Spirit. And if you're watching this right now and you're wondering why is it that these people are tuning in to worship in their homes in the middle of a pandemic and you're wondering to yourself, like, what is it about these people that I don't have in me? Are they just optimist? Are they just naive? Are they just kind of unaware of what's going on around them? No, that's not it at all. The reason we're here The reason we're worshiping God in the middle of a pandemic is because each one of us are being carried along in a river we did not create. We are being washed 
along in this glorious river that is filling us from the inside out and transforming us more and more into the glory of God. And that river was released by Jesus, who now sits enthroned by the Father and was released, washing over us for you and for me. That's why we're worshiping right now. We're not naive. We're not ignorant. We're not even optimistic. We're filled with this spirit, this living water we cannot deny. That's why we're doing this right now. And um, I know there's a shortage on toilet paper. And, and I know Lindsay and I can't find Clorox wipes to save our life right now. I know there's shortages right now in this moment of pandemic, but let me tell you this. Because Jesus sits on the throne, because he has poured out the spirit of God, you and I have exactly what we need to survive this pandemic. We have everything we need. And I really miss Gibson's Donuts. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I'm satisfied in the one who has given me all I need.